So we had a, have actually a couple of graduates in my family, um, two college graduates. My niece is graduating from UCLA, and my nephew just graduated from um, San Francisco State University. And it just strikes me, uh, for high school students and especially for college students, it seems like such a, a strategic time in your life when you have so many choices before you all of a sudden you don't have to do school like you used to do school and you have just so much possibility in front of you. And so I think that's why we try to give all of our wisdom to these graduates. I don't know about you, but I found myself picking out my favorite book to give to my niece, uh, The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. And uh, then there's a poem by Mary Oliver that I love called The Summer Day. And it ends with this great question. And I copied it and put it in the card for my niece and my nephew. The question at the end of this poem is, tell me, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Isn't that a great question? So I put that in there. And then when we went to the graduation, you know, we've got schools that are paying a lot of money to get these inspirational speakers who are sometimes actors or actresses, sometimes comedians, sometimes uh, athletes, politicians, all kinds of folks, CEOs. And at San Francisco State University, their speaker was the CEO of the Giants, Larry Bear. And since my nephew is more into music than athletics, he wasn't that impressed. <laughs> but, you know, it occurred to me that, you know, as I started thinking about when I graduated from college, I wasn't listening to the wisdom of what anybody was saying to me. I was totally into grad night at Disneyland and, you know, just or when I graduated from high school. I mean, either time that I graduated, I really wasn't paying attention. In fact, I remember my aunt gave me a book. The book was titled Ishii. And I remember, I just thought it was funny that she gave me this book. And I never read it, and I gave it away. Later I discovered, you know, it's actually a wonderful book about an amazing human being. But, you know, we, the wisdom that we think, really, we want to pass on is not necessarily being received as such wonderful wisdom by those that we think is supposed to be our audience. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching the disciples in the passage we are in. We are in a series on the parables. Jesus often taught with stories, these stories that are from very ordinary life circumstances, somehow communicating the extraordinary truth of God and as we start in Luke 16, and I do invite you to get your Bibles out because I want you to see something at the end that's beyond our passage, just one verse beyond it. I want you to notice who's listening in on this story. We'll notice that even though he's addressing the disciples, the students, the learners, the apprentices to Rabbi Jesus, actually the ones that are overhearing and need to be hearing are the teachers themselves, the Pharisees. So this is Luke 16, the first 13 verses. I will tell you before we begin this parable, it is one of the more difficult parables. And the reason that it's one of the more difficult parables is because you have a very unsavory person lifted up as a model, which is difficult. Let's pray so that God can guide us as we listen to God's word. 
Lord, as we are here in worship several Sundays after celebrating Pentecost, the giving of the gift of your Holy Spirit, we know that it's only by your Spirit that we can understand, that we can hear, that we can receive, that we can respond. So we pray for your Spirit to move among us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So the rich man summoned this manager, said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Well, then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. <clears throat> and I'm ashamed to beg, I have decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. <coughs> Excuse me. I got this tickle. A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. I'm going to pause just a moment because I got this tickle. <coughs> Sorry. All right, I'm going to keep going. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then... You have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth. Who will entrust to you the, thank you, the nurse? <coughs> hey, Naomi, come here. Can you finish reading this? <coughs> Can you read that paragraph right there at the podium? Yeah, that has an anesthetic in it, so it'll be better in just a little bit. Okay, who was listening? Where did she end? Twelve. Twelve. And if you have not been faithful with, with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. <clears throat> the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all this, and they ridiculed him. So he's, that's it. <clears throat> Praise God for the body of Christ. That's all I have to say. <clears throat> well, could you hear the story even though I was kind of choking and coughing through the whole thing? <clears throat> so, does that strike you as kind of an unusual story for Jesus to lift up as a model? Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, finding the CEO of Enron or, you know, J.P. Morgan and saying, would you please be the commencement speaker? you know, at our graduation exercise because you can tell the people how to rip people off and get away with it. 
It's just a very unusual story. And not only is this man who's the opposite of Jesus, he's lazy, he's proud, he's dishonest, he's unrepentant. He's not only commended by his master, (coughs) whom he ripped off, who else is he commended by? By Jesus. And why? Okay, I'm going to throw it back to you. (coughs) Why is he commended by Jesus? I'm going to go over here because I don't want to keep coughing. So why? Why is he commended by Jesus? He used the wealth to establish friendships. The guy is smart. He's smart. Because even though he knows I'm getting fired because I've been this dishonest manager, he's taking the choices he has right now, goes to the creditors, lowers their bill so that they will open their homes to him. He's amazingly shrewd and brilliant with what he has. (coughs) So, as I'm coughing my way through this, I just want you to know that there's negative examples that are used in other parables where Jesus is taking, for instance, the man who was the neighbor who would not help his neighbor in need. Next Sunday when we have the guest speaker about the unjust judge, Jesus uses these negative examples and then from that will say, how much more? If you have people that do horrible stuff like this that are not good people or not acting good, How much more will God do the right thing, or how much more should you be doing the right thing? So then he goes from this negative story about what the dishonest manager does, children of this age, and then he says, how much more should children of light do what? The whole chapter is about money and who we're serving and what we're serving. You cannot serve God and wealth. So how much more should children of light be making choices every day with what we have as stewards. We are managers. We are stewards of what God has given to us. We are held to account. We have a loving master who's given us everything. And so Jesus is using this as a negative example, saying, how much more? Yo, this is wonderful. It's like a sanctuary full of deacons. They're all rising to the occasion. This is great. So as he's teaching, using this negative example... You have the Pharisees, who are the teachers of the people of God, who would be hearing the point that Jesus is making, which is, we should be serving God and not money. With everything that we have, the true riches that we have in life are in God, right? And so the Pharisees would be agreeing with the point that Jesus is making. And yet, what do we hear about the Pharisees? They might be the people that are nodding their heads in agreement with the fact that everything comes from God and that he is our help. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. But what are they loving and what are they serving? They are serving money. They are serving wealth. So even though Jesus is talking to the disciples, the ones who really need to hear his message are the teachers The models, that's who the Pharisees are. They're modeling for the people of God what it looks like to live as a servant of God's riches, our life in God. (coughs) Sorry about this. 
So they'd be the ones nodding their heads in church, like you and me. That's right. We need to be slaves to God and not wealth. Fortunately, Cliff Kemper is going to come up and read something to you. I don't know if you ever hear um, With a Perspective on NPR, but I want you to hear this With a Perspective. Cliff, you've got to tell them what it is. Uh, NPR has a, um, a, a daily uh, editorial by a, a person from, uh, from their readership called uh, With a Perspective. So I will be reading one of those perspectives. Vacuum, vacuuming my room the other day, I started feeling nostalgic about my first apartment. I was in my 20s, and it was my first time really living on my own. It was a tiny studio in a crummy part of town. And although I don't miss the neighborhood or the shabby building, I do miss one thing about that apartment. It was empty. In my hazy recollection, there was a bed, a table, and a chair, and not much more. And today, maneuvering the vacuum around tastefully matched furniture, electronic devices, sleek floor lamps, tons of books, heaps of baseball caps, the thought crossed my mind, how did I end up with so much junk? Thirty-five years after my first apartment, the years have brought me more than maturity, marriage, and a mortgage. They've brought stuff. Like most Americans, I have too many possessions. In fact, everyone I know has too much stuff. A garage filled with boxes of who knows what, an addict of dusty castoffs and clothes that haven't seen the light of day since Reagan was president. In our consumer culture, we all spend way too much energy endlessly accumulating more and more. We're a nation of hoarders. The United States now has more storage rental units than Starbucks. And despite my own occasional, out, my, despite my own occasional bursts of ruthless purging and a yearly garage sale, the junk just keeps piling up. Like most of us, I could probably toss half my stuff and never even notice it's gone. And there, in the middle of vacuuming, I realized something. Stuff is exhausting. And these things own me as much as I own them. Although I have a lot of things, I can never find the one thing that I need when I need it. Thirty-five years later, I miss those uncomplicated days of owning nothing. I wish I could say this forced me to unload all my worldly belongings and live a life of pure and simple, uncluttered Zen minimalism. I still have too much stuff. But I'm working on it. I just bought three books on how to cut clutter. <laughs> I know they're here someplace. Yeah. So many people look back nostalgically to those days when you just got out of college or just were starting your life, and everything you owned was in a crate. And you, you had bookshelves with cement blocks. And how many of you look back longingly to the simplicity of that time? I've heard many of you say that. And maybe that's why we want to impart our wisdom to the graduates. You know, they have so many choices and we feel so stuck. But the dishonest steward realized that he was not stuck. Even in a situation where he was stuck, he still had choices choices with what he could do in that moment. We decide every day where our security 
will be, who our master is. The thing that I loved about that with a perspective is he has this longing to simplify. He does a purging. He, many of you clean out your stuff for the annual garage sale. But then he's still captive to consumerism. What is his solution? Buying three books. Will he read all those books? I just cleaned out a bookshelf, and I gave away books that I bought two months ago that I never read, and I know I won't. How sad is that? Many of us respond to the hoarding by watching the TV show, The Hoarders. <laughs> but the real issue is in that line, I don't know if you heard it, where he said, all these things own me as much as I own them. Inadvertently, this teacher from San Francisco is actually serving a master he does not want to serve. Inadvertently, this teacher from San Francisco is teaching and modeling a lifestyle that he does not believe in. Jesus' wisdom is this. No slave can serve two masters. The dishonest steward knew this. No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Jesus was saying this to the disciples. It's overheard by the Pharisees, the ones who are teaching, modeling the faith, our life in God, our life is in God and not wealth, and yet they were lovers of money without knowing it. They were modeling and teaching something different, not what they believed in. They were slaves. Interesting that Jesus chooses the word slaves who needed to be set free, but they could not see it. Could not see it. At least the dishonest manager is aware of his predicament. The Pharisees were not. And yet they're the models for the people of God. You know, it is striking to me how important whatever inspiration, teaching we are doing for our children, for the next generation, is coming from how we live. It's coming from our lives, our lifestyle. You probably know this, but our philosophy here in the church more and more with children's ministry, youth ministry, and our whole ministry is family-based. We believe that discipleship will happen and is happening primarily through our life as a congregation, the way we're living, and through your lives in your homes, the way you are living in your homes. You are the primary shapers of your child's faith and your grandchildren's faith. I think it's so great that Allison is sharing in worship today. And here you see, for Allison, just a longing for prayer, a longing to grow in faith, a longing to live, not for wealth, mammon, stuff, but for God. 
And Allison's shaping to come to this place, I look at her family, your extended family, and even though, you know, Linda and Dave I don't know as well as her grandparents, Jim and Rhoda, I do know this, that Dave and Linda have brought their kids to church. And that is no small accomplishment for parents. That is not easy. There are so many competing things that to bring your children or to somehow make sure that priority is in there in the midst of all the other things is really, really amazing. So I know that much about Allison's parents and her grandparents, Jim and Rhoda, who live a life of prayer, who live a life of serving. Jim's on session, Rhoda's in the choir, who live a life of worship, who live a life of simplicity. They have their extended family to their home every Sunday night, right, for a big family dinner. All who can come, the kids, the, the in-laws, the, the cousins, they all get together at Jim and Rhoda's house. So their priorities, and when I went and visited them, Jim and Rhoda, they said to me, you know, our home is really pretty simple. We haven't really done anything to fix it up, and we know all our neighbors have, but we just don't care that much about fixing up our house and doing remodeling. And isn't that just quintessential kind of simplicity, you know, the priorities, and they talked to me about how they're longing to try to be serving and to be around the poor, though that's scary to them. That's how we're communicating and molding and shaping the lives of our graduates, not through poems and books and commencement speakers, but in our lived life and what we're choosing to do with our lives and these practices every single day. You know, it strikes me, I spent a lot of time in this parable wondering, what the heck? You know, why did Jesus tell this story? And maybe we are the dishonest managers who are not facing how prone we are to find our security elsewhere and not in God. Because if I'm really honest with you, Jesus' question, are we lovers of God or are we lovers of wealth? Who or what owns us? I know the right answer. But I also know that I find a lot of security in my 403B. I find a lot of security in the equity in my home, in the stuff that I can do, the stuff that I have every day. And in some ways, I feel stuck. You know, like I have to find security in that. But I don't have a choice. That's, that's just an imperative. And maybe I look for those simpler days when you aren't so dependent on having enough income for a long, long life ahead. But we have choices. We have choices today. And some of those choices that help us live into the reality that our life is in God and not in stuff are actually simple choices of practices that mold and shape that truth in our lives. Practices like worship. You are here. 
That is helping you make a choice today. Practices like prayer. Beginning, many of you begin and end your day with prayer. It's a part of your daily life. Many of you long to, to find a way to do that. Spending time in God's word so that you're contextualizing your life in God. Finding a way to do that. Learning how to be generous and simplify your life. And one of the best ways to do that is to be around the poor. It contextualizes our life with reality instead of wealth. And we always feel like we don't have very much when you're around people that have a lot. So the question for us today, the end of that poem, the Mary Oliver poem, is not for the graduates. I think it's for us, the church. Tell me, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? The question is for us as models and teachers of those who contextualize and answer that question to say we serve God, not mammon. The question is to parents, grandparents who make the biggest impact by what we're choosing today. Today. Let's pray. Jesus, it is easy to feel stuck. Like we don't have choices that we have to in this very expensive place to live. That we have to be dependent upon mammon. Money. Wealth for our security. Lord, lead us, set us free. Open our eyes to know that you are our life and embed in us those practices that will help us live faithfully, that reality, the reality that all we have comes from you and that you provide. In Jesus' name, amen.